Well, this morning we have finished the sermon series on growing faith, but on this Mother's Day we're going to take a look at those who discovered faith out of a messy grace and how that ended up translating into a powerful grace that transformed their families and generations to come. In the month of May, we've been celebrating a lot of different folks. Last week, we celebrated our graduates, today, our uh, mothers, and then at the end of this month, we will celebrate and remember those who've given their life for the freedoms that we have. And on Memorial Day, we'll be moving outside for Lawn Chair Church. Uh, we're having to do that because some construction's happening in here. We're not building anything. We're just repairing damages to our roof from some of the storms in the past, which will knock us out of this space on that Sunday. We will be outdoors, one service, 1030. When we get done with that service in our lawn chairs, we'll be having a hot dog pig out. So we may even challenge the mothers in the room to a hot dog eating contest. You never can tell. So be here on the 28th. And then come back this Wednesday night. We didn't get to launch last Wednesday because of the storms. So our men's ministry will be looking at how we can protect our house. That would be the temple. That would be our rooftops, and that would be God's house. And we'll be talking about what that looks like. Our ladies will be looking at the video series from Women's Retreat this year called Dwell. We want to invite you back this Wednesday night. Meals from 5 to 6, Bible study from 6 to 7.15. So let's dig in and let's look at a concept called messy grace. Now God's grace is holy. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is perfect. It's the objects of his grace that make it messy. And as we look at this Mother's Day sermon, I'm going to just give you a warning straight up. This is unlike probably any Mother's Day sermon you've ever heard. But it is a Mother's Day sermon that should be heard. It is looking into the four mothers of Jesus' family tree. We're going to dig in on that and we're going to learn a lot about what real grace looks like and the legacy that can come from a messy grace. Now the word messy doesn't usually show up on Mother's Day. It's our moms that are always keeping the nest from being messy. It's always our moms that are picking up everybody else's mess and trying to bring order to chaos. And so moms, I get that's not a common term for you, but not everybody's a mom in the room. Can I get an amen from the messy folks in the space? That's us. And moms make a huge difference out of the family messes. Well, can you imagine what it would be like to gather at Jesus' house for Mother's Day? Everybody comes in from out of town, and they're hanging out, and we're celebrating Jesus' mom, Mary. Oh, yeah, miracle mom, superwoman, handpicked by God to be the mother of the Savior of the world, the only mother who's ever lived on the planet that ever raised a perfect child. Think about that. Think about all the pressure in the room. Now, my mom would probably debate that statement about the only child, but that's okay. It's another story, another sermon in and of itself. We show up at Jesus' house, and, and man, why can't I be like Mary? Uh, we're reminded of how good she is and how poor a job we're doing. Maybe you showed up at church before, and they've preached on Proverbs 31, and the perfect woman that you read about there in Proverbs 31, and you read that checklist, and you think, man... I don't even check some of those boxes. I fall short. Why can't I be a Proverbs 31 woman? Why can't I be this? And that can happen for us as men in the room. We pale in comparison to the sacrifice and, and all that mothers do on behalf of a family. We can all look in the mirror and think, well, man, I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. How can God use somebody like me? And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're going to look into Jesus' 
Mother's Day, if you will, his family tree and see through four mothers what real mothers can look like. As we think about Jesus, Jesus didn't celebrate Mother's Day on a certain day in a calendar year. That wasn't their custom. But I would tell you as you look at Jesus' life, he was always honoring his mother and he was always honoring women. In a culture in a day and time when women were considered second-class citizens, didn't have all the rights of the male species, were often abused and set aside, Jesus was always elevating women in Scripture. When there were those who showed up that wanted to stone an adulterous woman, it was Jesus who would step into that moment and would defend her in front of the whole crowd. When there was a woman drawing water from Jacob's well, a woman with a terrible reputation that no one else would associate with, we find Jesus engaging in her story. We find Jesus approaching her when men should never have approached her unless they had an evil motive. And Jesus would love her right there and would give her living water. We can look in other places in Scripture and we can find Jesus once again elevating a woman's stature. Mary Magdalene, who had become one of the most devoted worshipers and followers of Christ, was known for her demonic spirits, the demonic spirits that controlled her and owned her soul, and Jesus would set her free. This very Jesus, we look into his story in Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, a tax collector, someone who didn't measure up, somebody who should have never been one of Jesus' disciples, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings us the reality of how messy grace really can be. His story, a mess. He was the basic modern-day mafia dude of his town. He was the tax collector. It was a racket. He was an extortionist that was taking other people's money and was living high on the hog as he would extort from them in that day. He's radically transformed by God's grace, and his mess becomes a trophy of God's grace. That Matthew writes this gospel under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to go into some Ancestry.com. Watch this, verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, as you go through the genealogies, if you've ever uh, had a powerful, quiet time in Leviticus or some other portion of Scripture, and you always have the begats, the begats, the begats, and this father, and the legacies, you read those and you're like, holy cow, can we skip that section? But if you do, you will miss out on something powerful that you need to see. In most genealogies in Jewish life, they would record the genealogies through the father's line. Father begat this son who begat this son, and that's how the name, the family name, uh, was passed on. This is a picture of the promise made to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed, knowing that that would come eventually to the seed that would be Messiah, the Savior of the world. As we continue on, uh, verse 4, in this powerful time of devotion, look at it. Now you find Ram, who was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, by the way, was the father of Jesse, just in case you wanted to know. Jesse was the father of David the king, 
And David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. And all God's people said, huh? What? Why is that in there? Why is that important? Uh, Dude, let's get on to the Mother's Day sermon. There's your Mother's Day sermon. What do we see here? You see, as you look through Matthew's genealogy, something you don't see anywhere else in Scripture. You find, yes, all these fathers that begat their sons, but all of a sudden, he introduces four mothers, four unique names that are there for a reason. Now, I want you to get ready, because as we look into this, it's not going to read like Proverbs 31. It's not going to be warm and fuzzy. It's going to be real. And we're going to see four testimonies that were part of the family tree of Jesus that made a difference in this world, but also made a mess of this world. Let's look at those four names. You go on, we will see four names that are highlighted here. Again, not Proverbs 31 women, at least at first. Some believe that Proverbs 31, which was written in Proverbs, under the influence of Solomon, the wisest one in the world, is going to speak out of reference to one of these four names, Bathsheba. But let's take a look at the first name, the name Tamar. The first name of the four that shows up is the name Tamar. Now, you may not know Tamar's story. It's not preached on much in church. As a matter of fact, I think I woke a few people up and, and, and set off a few alarm clocks in the first service. As we dig in on these real stories, they get real messy, so just be ready. I know some of you have younger children in the room, and so I'm going to do my best to uh, contextualize the truth without getting too graphic. Tamar's story is found in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar, who was a Canaanite who should have never been married into Abraham's seed, was taken in as a wife to Judah's son, his firstborn, his name was Ur. As she was married to this young man, Ur, she's now married into Abraham's bloodline. Ur was the firstborn, as I said, of Judah, and the Bible says that Judah was a wicked, wicked man. We don't know exactly what he did. We don't need to know. We just know it was so bad. Listen to this. It was so wicked that God took him out of this world. God took his life. We don't know what he had done to deserve that judgment, but he was living such a terrible life that the Lord said, you can't live on this planet anymore, you're done. That was her first husband. We have to know that whatever was wicked enough for God to bring that kind of judgment in life had to translate into her marriage, into her family life and existence, and what she thought was going to be a dream became a nightmare. In those days, if you lost your husband, if you were a widow, you were in bad shape. You couldn't earn income, you would be destitute, and so there developed a cultural moray where if a wife lost a husband, if he had any brothers, the next brother in line was to take her as his wife and was to keep his brother's legacy alive by bearing more children. So as that story goes on, Tamar is now married to Judah's second son, a guy named Onan. She's now married to Onan, she's trying to rebuild her life. She's trying to move on in life out of this terrible marriage she's experienced. And guess what happens to husband number two? He dies. Thus we see in scripture the first black widow. She's getting that kind of reputation. She must be bad news because anybody who's married to this lady, they ain't lasting long. And Judah 
is looking at the norm and he's supposed to step in and provide the next son and he's thinking man I don't want to lose another kid this lady's bad luck man I'm not going there and so he decides he's going to stack the deck to his advantage he's going to protect his boy and he tells her that his son is too young she needs to go back to her father and when her when his son is old enough he will reunite them and they'll take care of her someday he never had any intention of following up on it. He was just trying to save face, try to look like he was doing his fatherly duty, but he's trying to pass her off and move on in life. There she is, now a reputation. She's apparently bad luck, damaged goods. She's destitute and living at home with dad once again. Years later, it's found out and somebody brings word to her that her father-in-law is now a widower. His wife has died. The mother of her two husbands is dead. Her father-in-law is now a widower. Now, we can't appreciate the custom of the day, but what would happen is after you ran out of sons to take care of the daughter-in-law, then it was the responsibility of the father to step in. Judah wanted nothing to do with Tamar. Judah wanted to move on with his own life. Judah now, being the selfish man he was, that built into the heartbeats of his sons this wickedness, is now going to live in his own wicked ways. The Bible says in the story that he moved out into the land where his flocks were to go take care of them. And on the way, this widower decides he's going to worship. Not worship Jehovah, but worship the gods of this world. And in that worship practice, they had these temples that men could go to for worship and they could find a priestess and they could worship together, if you know what I mean. Are you getting the picture? I'm trying to keep it safe and G-rated the best I can in this audience. On the way to worship, he finds what he believes is one of the priestesses on the side of the road. He pulls over. And he is feeling led to worship. He worships in that moment. The lady disappears. He tries to find her later on. And it is brought to his attention that that priestess was actually someone in disguise. A lady named Tamar. His daughter-in-law deceived him. His daughter-in-law was so desperate to be provided for, she's going to force Judah's hand through her deceit, and sure enough, she comes up pregnant with twins. That is the first lady in Jesus' bloodline here, Tamar. A lady who was so desperate, she leaned on her own understanding, took things in her own hands, and there's more to her story later. Let's look at the second lady, the second one that shows up. As we sit around on Mother's Day, we all have a tendency to reflect and go through the stories. We remember the days, stories from our mom. We may talk about our grandmas if we knew our grandma's stories, our great-grandmas, and we think through and we kind of look back and we thank God for their legacies. Can you imagine being at Jesus' house? Just at our own house. It's weird. We sit around and I talk about my grandma Hulse. And I'll remember those stories. The only things I remember is when we went to Tulsa, because I was so little, every time we went out to eat, we'd always have to go looking for her dentures. They were either left in the napkin, they were hidden in the mashed potatoes, I'd have to go dumpster diving trying to find granny's teeth. Every, I'll remember that as long as I live. 
There are other unique stories that you guys are telling on your moms and your grandmas. And can you imagine Jesus and his family sitting down and talking about this family tree? Remember Tamar? Holy cow. What was she thinking? Oh, well, it gets, it gets just as good with the next one. Look at the second mother listed in Jesus' tree there. Her name was Rahab. If you don't know Rahab's story, you can look to Joshua chapter 2. Or you can learn from the song that is out. Rahab. No, we won't go there. Never mind. Joshua 2. Play with me here. Tamar was a one-time harlot. Rahab was a full-time harlot. That was her, as a matter of fact, every time you read about her in Scripture, the Old Testament or the New Testament, it is always Rahab the prostitute. Not Rahab the mother, not Rahab this or that. She wears this label because of the history of her past. As you watch her story unfold, we get introduced to her as 12 spies go to inspect the land on how they can take it, this land that God has given them, the promised land. And as these spies come into her city, they find their way to her house and they're looking for protection because if they get captured, they will be killed. Rahab, as she now has these spies invade her home, she could have been loyal to her country. She could have sold them out. She probably could have made some money. She probably could have become very wealthy off of protecting her city for her people. But in that moment, God worked in her life And through these men of God, with the plan of God, she realized they had something she didn't have. And in that moment, the Bible says God so moved in her heart that she joined their side, repenting of her city, her culture, her ways, and protected them from certain death. It was an act of faith from a changed heart, an act of faith that gets recorded even in the New Testament. So we have this lady, Tamar. She's a part of the legacy of the line of Abraham that would lead to Jesus. We find another part. You would think that the lineage of a king would have pure blood. Blue bloods, we call it. Not in Jesus' lineage. Not in his family tree. Not in your tree or my tree. We find messy blood. Blood that has fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, when we get all the way over to Hebrews chapter 11, it's pretty fascinating. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the the hall of faith. It's where the writer of Hebrews highlights those before the cross that were faithing in this Messiah who would come and live by faith. You'll find names like Abraham, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And then all of a sudden, the brakes are put on. And we find the name Rahab. If there was a Mount Rushmore in Israel, there would be Moses, there'd be David, there might be Noah, Elijah that we've been studying, and then there's going to be Rahab, who wasn't even a Jew, but placed her faith in the God of the Jews. She had a messy story, but God had an amazing grace. The third name in the lineage here, the third of the four women, is a lady's name by the name of Ruth. Now, I became familiar with that name in high school. That's my wife's name, Ruth Camille. I I didn't realize her name came from Scripture. And then for the dads in the room, Ruth, you're probably thinking Ruth Chris Steakhouse. Am I right? Can I get an amen from the men? 
No, there is a Ruth of the Bible. There's a whole book about this lady. And most of the stories and sermons you've heard about, heard about Ruth are very glorious. Her devotion to her mother-in-law. She grows up in a time where uh, all the men of her generation are wiped out. Her husband, her father-in-law, her brother-in-law. And she too is a widow like Tamar. And we see this glorious picture of God's grace in a woman by the name of Ruth who doesn't belong there, doesn't belong in Jewish scriptures because she was a Moabite. You say, what's a Moabite? Well, that comes from the seed of Moab. And do you know who Moab was? Moab was not the dude that went after the whale that you read about in books. Moab was the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. That story doesn't get any messier either. And so as we look at these four ladies, as we've seen already in three, we find mess after mess after mess after mess. But more than that, we see God's grace take the mess and make it beautiful. The one last story, Bathsheba. You know the story of Bathsheba. You know about her relationship with King David. You know his relationship that wasn't supposed to happen. It was outside of her marriage. She was married to Uriah, the Hittite. He was one of David's most loyal soldiers. And yet David, in his own ego, in his own desires, was so selfish that even though he had a palace full of wives and concubines, he wanted one more. He sought out Bathsheba, and he brought her into his world, and he took her in, and, and she ended up pregnant. To cover up that scandal, he had Uriah killed in battle. That's some messy stuff. That's some crazy stories. And yet that's the reality of why Jesus came. I could see Jesus on Mother's Day looking back at his family tree and seeing all these messes and realize that's why I've come. That's why my father sent me, for their messes, for my messes, and for your messes. That's how much God loves you. For God so loved you, he sent his only son to clean up our mess, to become the payment for our mess, to die on a cross for our sins. And so even in Jesus' own family tree, we find four stories that don't belong there, so we think. Those don't look like Proverbs 31 women. And as I said earlier, most believe Proverbs 31 was inspired by Bathsheba's testimony. All four of these ladies who had messy chapters in their life didn't let that define their life. They would experience God's grace and they would become legacy moms. And so what can we all learn from this? Not just mothers in the room, but each of us in this room. Well, here are three things. Take these with you today. Number one, don't compare yourself to other people. Don't look back and think, well, I don't qualify, I'm not good enough because I'm not like so-and-so. Or I don't have the purest of stories. My life's a mess, so God can't use me. That's crazy, because God used Tamar, and God used Rahab, and God used Ruth, and God used Bathsheba, and God will use you if you let him, if you let him. And when you compare yourself to other people, you lose either way. Sometimes we'll compare ourselves like the Pharisee did in the temple that day and said, oh God, I'm thankful that I'm not like this person. You kidding me? When you try to compare to someone else that doesn't measure up, maybe their story is messy in yours. That's hard to find, but let's say you found somebody whose story is messy in yours. All that does is lead to pride. 
Or on the other hand, if theirs is not as messy and they look like the perfect Proverbs 31 woman, or they're a godly man and they get everything right and they got perfect kids or so it looks like, and your life is a mess, you lose that way because now you live under spirit of condemnation and guilt. Don't compare yourself to other people. Number two, don't let your past cripple your future. God's word says God has a plan for your life. God had a plan for Tamar. Even though Tamar got involved and she tried to manipulate the plan, she tried to make things happen, even though we find Rahab struggling and thinks, man, the only way I'm going to make it in my city and in my culture is I've got to sell my body, that's all I have to give, and she buys into that lie. Or whether you think like Ruth, I'm a Moabite, and what can I do? Man, we're a cursed generation. We've come out of all this messy stuff. God can't use anybody like me. Don't let your past cripple your future. Because here's what we know in this room. Every single one of us has a past. Every single one of us has a messy chapter or two. Because if we didn't, we wouldn't need Messiah. We wouldn't need a Savior. We'd be going on our own merits, and we'd be able to present our story and say, hey, here's why I get to come to heaven. No, wrong. Messy lies need God's grace. Messy grace. Number three, press on. Press on to become the person God has called you to be. We can all look back, and we can all trip over over the past, and we can all say, man, I wish I could do it again. You can't do it again, but what you can do is what you can do. You can press on, and you can do all things through Christ, and you can let God write the last chapter. All four of these women who had messy pasts became glorious pictures of God's grace. Every single one of them experienced something greater than what they had messed up. And matter of fact, we have two examples Hebrews chapter 11, Rahab says this, By faith, Rahab the prostitute received the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Even in the New Testament, we find out the last chapter of her story. She ended up becoming a woman of faith. She ended up not going along with her culture, not doing what she'd always done, but instead placed her faith in the God of these spies. And it changed the rest of her story. Matter of fact, the second time she's talked about is all the way over here in James as well. For James would say in the same way, was Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? James would be arguing that we're not saved by quit doing certain things and start doing religious things. No, he was saying because she placed her faith in the God of the spies, that faith changed her life, and now she started doing faithful things. She did the right things, and she led into a life of honor. That was the last chapter of her story. And so on this Mother's Day, not just moms, but also the males in the room, we can all learn from these four mothers. We can all agree that our stories are messy. We can all agree we need a loving God to pour out his grace. That's why the Bible says we're not saved by cleaning up our mess. God had to clean it up. And God had to clean it up by sending a perfect substitute, a perfect sacrifice. Jesus, born of a virgin, born into this world, lived a perfect life, took on an ugly cross because of my messy sin.
so that if I would place my faith in him, my story could change. And God could use me for his glory. How's your story going to end? What's going to be the final chapter? Is it just going to be another chapter of mess? Or will it be a chapter that glorifies God through his grace? Let's pray about it with every head bowed and every eye closed. This isn't just for mamas. This is for future mamas. This isn't just for future mamas. This is for dads and future dads. This is for anyone in this room because all of us have made it a mess. That's why there was a cross. That's why there's the gospel, the good news, that Jesus can change any mess. He did it for Tamar. He did it for Rahab. He did it for Ruth. He did it for Bathsheba. He did it for David. He did it for Judah. He did it for Bill. And he'll do it for you. But you have to respond to that grace the Bible says it's a gift that God gives, and it only becomes your gift if you receive it. I couldn't understand that at first. I thought, no, 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 i got to clean up my mess. i got to be worthy of God's love, and then God will know I love him. No. The Bible says God demonstrated his love for you while you were a sinner, while you were a big old mess. Jesus brought his love for you. What are you going to do with that? He offers to you his forgiveness in the form of a gift a gift that he paid for, a gift that he offers to you, but you got to choose to receive it. You can say, no, I don't need it. I'm fine just like I am. That's your choice. Or maybe today there's someone here or online and you say, no, I need that gift. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm missing. I need God's grace. God save me. Call on his name. The Bible says he'll save you right now. Say, what do I do? Just pray and say, God, I received your gift. God, I'm a mess, but I give you this mess in exchange for your grace. Pray that right now. And here in a moment when we stand, there'll be ministers here at the front. Why don't you come to one of them and say, man, today, God's grace has changed my life. Maybe you have another decision for the Lord. Maybe you just need somebody to pray over you or pray with you. Maybe there's somebody you've been praying for that needs to be transformed by God's grace. You can come and we'll pray with you. Maybe you need a church family. We'd love to be your church family. Just know you're joining a bunch of messy people living in amazing grace. Father God, thank you for all that you are because of all that we weren't. Lord, in these moments, may your grace be more than amazing. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.